Luke uh, chapter 1 here, uh, he opens by saying, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect and um, we shouldn't think of that as without flaw. It's the idea of complete, having had a complete understanding of all things from the very first to write to you, an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, so uh, he's got uh, you know another verse there, but we, we uh, can grab that as this opening introduction. As many as have already made an attempt, uh, there are... You know, uh, Matthew and Mark and then now Luke and then John, which are accepted. There are uh, as, you know, firsthand or uh, eyewitness accounts, Luke doing a compiling, which we'll talk about. But um, the, uh, you know, history has many others who um, recorded but very incomplete uh, Roman historians, uh, Roman senators. Of course, you have Flavius Josephus that gave account of Jesus. There are accounts. I think, you know, something that's much more significant um, in regard to this is the way that people criticize the Bible. And they look at these accounts and they want to say that somehow it's flawed. Okay, And they come at that from a number of different angles. They'll say, like, you know, the Bible claims to be written by God, but it was, in fact, written by men. And then they'll say, you know, that it, it uh, is full of flaws and contradictions. And then they'll say, you know, it's been changed and rewritten over time and been, you know, distorted and warped and isn't what it used to be. None of those things are true. Um, you know, the Lord himself has confirmation all through the Scripture that shows us his hand in, is in this. This isn't a human production. This is a supernatural thing that has occurred here. Uh, I often will go a different route when people begin that criticism. Uh, you know, I'll say, well, you know, it seems like, you know, you rely upon human philosophy, you know, you know, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, right? If we took all the philosophers of the ancient world and we compiled them together, and I mean all of them, we have less than 820 manuscripts that we're relying upon. Much of what is uh, 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 ascribed to uh, Plato, for, existence, uh, for example, we don't know if he wrote it. Okay, there, there's, there's profound uh, flaws. Uh, the, the, the few copies we have, when you compare them to one another, they differ tremendously. Okay, so if we take all of those, and I mean all of them, you have less than 820 copies. There are more than 24,630 copies of the scripture, okay, that we compare against one another. And that's, that's the ones we've compared against one another and thrown out the garbage and kept what is reliable, okay? So, so what is available for us to glean from? When Luke is saying, I wanted to put together a complete understanding by you know what he's saying here having 
listen to the eyewitnesses, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. I wanted to derive these interviews and compile this most complete understanding of Jesus' life and ministry and his message. Luke is one of the best to rely upon in that regard. Um, listed uh, as a physician, uh, historically known as one who was a doctor, very studied. Uh, physicians are not like uh, today where there was a really codified method of their education. You might have somebody that was closer to just being like a witch doctor or you might even have somebody that was as much a veterinarian as they were, you know, a a human physician. Um, medicine uh, had a broad spectrum. Uh, the things that history tells us and we derive from the scripture about Luke is that he was one of the most educated, one of the most highly trained in his discipline of his day. Probably a slave most physicians were they didn't have their own you know private porsche chariot or whatever in their day they they were um purchased in the roman empire and um usually at a young age uh, it would be recognized that they had a certain gifting towards caring for people and nurturing people and then their master would invest in their training because that would benefit his household and benefit you know his family and his servants and everyone who worked for him but also he could then hire him out and make money by this one uh, working and being a physician to others within the community but you know much of what we think of as a doctor today part of the life of a physician at the time uh, very well read very well educated someone who really studied things very thoroughly. Um, there is a Christian tradition. I, I, I wouldn't be able to say it was history, but that Theophilus that he just referenced in verse 3 um, may have been his master, and there's another discussion within that that we'll look at, but uh, the thought that he actually lent him to Paul because of Paul's maladies and physical difficulties that uh, Luke would travel with him and care uh, for him. Now, the other interpretation of Theophilus uh, comes from the meaning of his name, which is lover of God. That's what Theophilus, theos, uh, you know, theology, we have that term there. Uh, you know, the phileo, the lover, the lover of God is the uh, um, idea that you get there. There are those that want to insist that that simply means uh, Luke is writing to everyone who is a lover of God. And you know what? I'll take both of those explanations. I mean, you know, because the message uh, certainly uh, applies uh, to us even today. So if you're a lover of God, then uh, this message is for you. If it was written to one individual uh, whose name interpreted meant lover of God, and then I believe God, you know, had the double entendre there uh, that uh, we also receive the benefit today uh, from Luke's 
writings. So um, as he moves through this and gives us the account, uh, it's we're not going to get a long ways because we're just covering this beginning segment of uh, the coming of Jesus and the promise of the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. Um, we're not going to you know, continue. This is for the, the, the Christmas season that we're in. But as we move through this, it's really important to look at the things that Luke lays out for us that are so significant uh, in regard to the details and uh, you know some of the medical aspects and and the um, uh, learning that he gives us. So um, the more complete uh, message, uh, given account, orderly account. Um, so some of the gospels. Um, I, I don't mean to say that they do a poor job, but um, if if we we make a mistake in thinking that they're chronological, sometimes uh, you know Matthew will especially give us details from here in a certain time and frame, and then he'll give us a tremendous discussion about something you know after that that happened much earlier. Uh, so uh, there isn't a a good chronological order. Uh, always in the Gospels. Luke doesn't do that entirely uh, because he's deriving it from interviews, essentially. I guess I would describe it that way. Um, but he does a much better job of trying to keep his timelines in order and his events in order and the sequencing in order. And it, it is, um, you know, uh, more orderly uh, that way. I would caution you. Um, there, it just springs to mind, uh, th there was a big kick a few years ago about uh, the chronological Bibles, and uh, everybody was wanting to get a chronological Bible and, and you know, and read through, and they, and, and the, the scholars that were, I scholars, I use that term loosely in regard to the, the chronological Bibles, they tried to take uh, all of the segments and assemble them in the order that they were written, and, um, you know, as I uh, examined the chronological orders uh, right away, things start popping up that um, uh, tell you that, uh, you know, things are wildly inaccurate. I, you know, I read a couple that put Job first. Well, um, <clears throat> okay, I, I agree with the concept, and I'm not going to chase this much further, but just stay with me in this. I agree with the concept that in all likelihood, Job was written previous to Genesis being compiled by Moses. But, I mean, I think we got to agree Genesis came first, right? You know, in the beginning, right? Uh, you know, and then, you know, I've seen weird things that, uh, you know, take in the beginning Genesis and then pile John chapter 1 in right after that because John starts out with in the beginning was the word. You start dismantling and unhinging and trying to rearrange the Bible and you're, you're going to create a lot of confusion, okay? Much better to get uh, some of the chronological descriptions. You know, some of them are two or three pages or, you know, ten-page explanations of chronology of the Bible. And if you want to be a serious student and spend some time reading around about what kings and what order and how things fell together, great. Uh, but I, I'm not one... Who all of that to say? I'm not one who recommends chronological Bibles. Okay, you know, if if you've picked one up and thought, "Hooray, this is my new project," and quickly got discouraged, it's not because you're a poor student. 
It's because it's an incredibly challenging process to try and do that. Okay, I've spent you know 30 plus years uh, studying all of that, and I've got a fair handle on some of it. But I also know you're going to come wildly off the rails if you try to put every last nuance in chronological order. So, longer rabbit trail than I intended. Uh, uh, Luke writing to Theophilus, I uh, wanted to give him a more complete, orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things in which you were instructed. So, Theophilus has already become a disciple in that he's a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ, right? He's not an apostle chosen and appointed by Jesus, but he's a follower and he's received instruction, perhaps from Luke and others, about the things pertaining to Jesus' life, ministry, and doctrine. And now Luke is assembling this in so that he'll have a more complete understanding or if you want, so that we'll have a more complete understanding. Verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was the da of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. So both of these people were descendants from Aaron, which puts their family line in the Levitical uh, priesthood. Not that Elizabeth would serve in that fashion, but the family line is consistently uh, Aaronic, we might say. The this, this statement that they're both righteous, you know, sometimes people hear that and from a worldly sense, they think something that's wildly inappropriate, you know, that, that they're somehow arrogant, that they're somehow, you know, thinking that they're better than everyone else. Biblically, the term righteous in regard to the law simply means that the person looks to, desires to, tries to go through the efforts of living according to the Levitical law so that they are right both with God and their fellow man. Not, not that they are like the Pharisees who are fake and doing terrible things and then dressing themselves up to look like they're something special. Someone who, especially the Holy Spirit, labels as righteous in the Scripture is probably extremely humble. Uh, they, they are trying to be in fellowship with the Lord, trying as much as it relies upon them to be right with their fellow man. So righteousness would be best thought of as being rightness. They're, they're, they're really people that uh, you, you would probably enjoy them as soon as you met them, and the more that time passed, you'd probably like them more and more with every passing day because they, they are consistent. They live according to the things that they say and teach. They try to help others do the same thing. So this, this righteousness should be thought of, you know, we sometimes say, like, you know, they're the salt of the earth. 
know, meaning they're nice people. They're good. They're honest. They're genuine. They're not hypocrites. They're sincere. And uh, that should be how we think of these uh, people. They, they, they are righteous before God. It's not man's opinion of them. The Holy Spirit is making the confession to us here that these people were really genuine as believers, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. The term well and advanced in years, uh, referencing both of them, was reserved for people usually that were over 80 years old and that they had been so stricken with their age that they were bent over with their years. It's the idea of you see them and you automatically want to help them across the street, up the stairs, hold the door. You know, they, they are frail. They, they, you know, they're, they're kind, they're generous, they're wonderful people, but, they, you know, they, they are stricken with the years that they have experienced. We shouldn't make the mistake, right? There are those who are stricken with illness, uh, okay? Uh, this is not what's being described. Age has taken its toll. Uh, the the bones, the joints, uh, you know, if you live long enough, everyone's going to get arthritis eventually, right? Uh, you know, it just the cartilage wears out, the bones wear out, uh, you know, you, you end up with your skeleton suffering as a result of just wear and tear. It's an unavoidable aspect uh, to life. You know, I've got both my knees now. You know, one's had surgery, the other one has not, and, and now I can tell both of them are bone on bone, and uh, it tells me so uh, frequently. You know, every morning uh, definitely is. These people are, you know, way past all that. We do that thing, right? You know, the young guys start complaining about, oh, I just got this pain in my back. I said, how old are you? 30. Yeah. Well, just wait. You know what I'm saying? Just wait. You know, when you're 50. And, and I'm complaining at 50, and, you know, my older friends are like, oh, that's nothing. You just, you wait. These people are the ones who've, like, it doesn't matter what your complaint is. They're like, really? I, I wish I was 20 years younger. You know? they, they are stricken in years. It's significant to what is about to happen to them, to, to what the Lord is going to do in their lives. So they, they are stricken uh, with the years, bent over is the idea. So it was. That while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So all of the tribe of Levi uh, that chose to serve as priests, uh, there were so many of them that they would divide the duties up over the year and they would basically set a calendar and then they would some of the families had assigned uh duties but even within that they would then draw lots about who's going to do what portion of those duties what part of of their work is going to fall to them so so it's literally it's drawing of lots which uh it's a lot like uh drawing the short stick 
or the long straw. You know, who's going to burn incense? And they hold out the straws and, you know, people, you know, pull off and he pulls them and he gets the whichever way, long or short straw. And okay, so you're burning incense uh, when it comes time for you to serve at uh, your, your time. So the lot falls to him and he went into the temple of the Lord. And verse 10, the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So if you're familiar with the scriptures and how this works, right? Um, the people gather together and the priest goes in and he actually goes in with uh, two other priests, but then uh, the priest is going to burn the incense, goes into the holy place with the incense alone, and he offers the incense on the altar there uh, before the Lord. The people all wait outside, the religiously devout, and they're in prayer as the smoke is ascending uh, from uh, the, the offering, and it is a massive cloud. They, they take in a huge pile of incense that's been beaten into fine flake or fine powder, and they scatter it on the hot coals. So you shouldn't think of it as being like, you know, you got your little log cabin pine, you know, incense burner, and you light it and sit there, and it sort of drifts out the chimney and makes the house smell nice or whatever. This is massive amount uh, of uh, incense scattered as broad as they could get it onto the coals all at once and they usually did it out of a pan and, and sort of step out of the way because it's going to erupt into a cloud of smoke and fill uh, the holy place and pour out of the temple and it's going to be visible you're going to be able to see it in the sky uh, from outside the temple and from inside uh, Jerusalem you're going to see that it's the hour of the prayer with that it becomes significant that they wait until it has finished burning and made the offering because the priest comes out and he makes the proclamation upon the people that Moses did uh, where he declares uh, to them, may uh, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And the people receive the blessing and essentially say, so be it or amen. And then they depart after the hour of prayer. So if you're familiar with the story, uh, the, the, everything's about to go into motion for the offering of the incense and the hour of prayer, and the people are going to wait, and he doesn't return. And uh, being that he's old and stricken in years, the concern sort of grows. Like, is somebody going to have to go in and get Zacharias? Like, should we dial 911? Or, you know, what, what is going on? Here in the moment. So so it's fallen to him, and this is his duty. And he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So this is the detail I'm talking about, right? Not that it's all that significant, but like, you know, Luke is probing the question of whoever can give him enough information to say the angel was actually standing on the right side of the altar uh, in this uh, setting. So, you know, you get, you get specific details uh, that tell us that this is, in fact, from very specific questioning uh, that, that went on in order to compile this book. So the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. Troubled, I mean, 
if Zacharias wasn't, this probably took 10 years right off his life. You know what I'm saying? Just in the moment. Turn around, angel of the Lord. What does that look like? You know, is this actually, you know, a winged angel? Um, some of the angels that we see recorded in the scripture appeared to be as men. Uh, so it, it, may, it may have just been his announcement and proclamation, but certainly no one just wanders into the temple. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are people outside, there are priests outside, and it's not like the guy was just looking for the bathroom and took a wrong turn and ends up in there and like, I'm sorry, you know, does this facility have an ATM? You know, he, he's there suddenly appearing, and it is a total shock to Zacharias in the moment. And, you know, as it's recorded, he was troubled. And it's that sense of troubled, like this is profound that a person, an angel would be standing here in him. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, very significant, okay? Um, within the culture, um, you know, you'll, you'll notice as far as the order of things and what I've described to you here, the scripture records firsthand these people are righteous and they are faithful and they are walking with the Lord. If you had taken a poll of especially Elizabeth in this day, the people of her community and maybe even her family would have said there's hidden sin in her life. There's something wrong. She's She can't have children, and they've tried for all these years, and now she's an old woman. God God has cursed her, okay? And the gracious people in the community might have said um, maybe she was cursed because of something that her parents did, okay? They might not lame the blame on her shoulder. Most people would. Most people in the culture have that attitude, especially in this time to say if a woman can't have a child because they were all hoping to be the mother of the messiah they were they were hoping to be the fulfillment of what was written in genesis chapter 3 as the lord told mary that her seed would someday crush the head of satan uh, the serpent and, and and they're longing to be the one who gives birth to the the promised messiah and that promise is built for all these thousands of years, and she's lived under that stigma, right? You got to know that Zacharias has been praying in earnest. There were probably many times where he brought sacrifices before the Lord. I'm totally speculating, but the, the stigma is intense at this time, okay? His priesthood covers a lot of that stigma and allows him to serve before the Lord, and so the people do have a mixed attitude, but the general thought is if you can't have a child, then God has cursed you. And it's it's God doesn't just curse people <clears throat> that are good. Their mindset is God has cursed you because you're bad. And uh, like I said, the most gracious might say your family was bad, your dad, your mom, and so you've been cursed. God doesn't want your family line to go on anymore. He's stopping your family line where it is. You know, I have known a handful of women that have wanted to have children and prayed in earnest. And there, there's so much pressure 
and so much anxiety over why can't I have a child? You know, and then they, you know, go to a fertility clinic and, you know, get some treatment and boom, they have a child. And now they've got four kids. And now they're praying, God, now please just stop. You know, we, we've got enough. We don't want any more. We've already bought a 15-passenger bus. And if we could just please, you know. It's, it's funny how the Lord works in these settings. Here, Zacharias is being told, your prayers have been answered. Your wife's going to have a baby. And... I don't know about you, but I think there's a very powerful lesson in when we think God should answer us. I've said many times in regard to this specific passage, you know, I had my children starting when I was 20, and I'm really grateful that um, we, you know, were young and we got to have all the time that we did with them, and the thoughts of beginning to be a father now. Like if I had never been a father before and suddenly I had my first child at, you know, in my 50s, I run around with the grandkids and just, you know, pass out, at, you know, late, like 1230 in the afternoon, you know, because it's just like, it's intense. It'll drain you. 80 years old, stricken with years, just you're immediately, you know, thinking, well, there goes the savings because we're going to have to hire a sitter pretty much every day for, you know. This is this is going to take a lot of effort. Point being, not just, I'm not just trying to you know dredge up humor in this. Zacharias is probably literally thinking like, are you opening mail late up there? Well, like why why are you answering my prayer now? This is your timing stinks. This is not even right. <laughs> I was I was praying earnestly when I was 20. You know what I'm saying? I was desperate and pouring my heart out when I was 30. I began to taper down when I was 40. When I hit my 50s, I would occasionally have some complaining prayer conversation and then leave it alone. When I got to 60 and 70, I just looked back wistfully like, wouldn't that have been nice? You know what I'm saying? I'm 80-something now. I haven't been praying that for some time. Your timing is not my timing. And that's very often how it is, you guys. Okay, we we have a certain mindset, and God says, no, not my mindset, not my timing, not my method, not my location, not my provision. We're, we're going to do this the way that I want to do this. And, and right, John's going to be called the greatest prophet ever born to any woman. Remarkable what John is going to accomplish here. So here, your, your, your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord, right? Not, not according to men's standards, not according to measurements comparing to past prophets, right? Not one single miracle attributed to John's ministry. Yeah, Jesus said he, he was Elijah, and he was the greatest prophet that had ever lived. 
not according to man's standards in any regard. He will be great in the sight of God, more than anything because of his obedience and his announcement and proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. He'll give you joy, gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. Um, Part of the Nazarite vow uh, given to us there, I gave that uh, uh, sort of methodology uh, to remember the Nazarite vow. No rot, uh, no raisin, no razor uh, to be part of the Nazarite's life. So nothing dead, don't touch anything dead, Uh, don't touch anything to do with grapes, grape leaves, grapevine, grapes, raisin, wine, right? So no rot, no raisin, no razor, no haircut. Uh, Don't don't cut your hair ever, Uh, as long as you take the vow. Usually that vow was not a lifelong vow. They would take a Nazarite vow for a year. They would take a Nazarite vow for a month, um, you know, things of that nature. Certain Nazarites, Samson, uh, was supposed to be a lifelong thing, and he violated all three elements. John simply stated here, probably absorbed more of it, but neither the wine nor the strong drink. So, sobriety, clarity of mind. Um, I just want to, you know, we do so much work amongst drug addicts and alcoholics. I just want to touch on the subject again. Um, it affects a lot of Christianity. Uh, we often, you know, hear people saying like, uh, "Well, it's not forbidden uh, in the Scripture, you know, to drink," and um, you know that's true. It's not forbidden, uh, but you have high recommendations to avoid it completely. I always point to Paul's conversation with Timothy, where he has to command Timothy to no longer drink only water, meaning Timothy had chosen to abstain completely from alcohol and drink only water. Uh, The water was polluted, especially where Timothy was um, uh, ministering, bacterial growth in the water. They put wine in it so the alcohol would kill that, and Paul is saying you need to do the same. Uh, I wish that it were that Christianity was only ever using it for, you know, sterilization processes. Um, Just two years ago, the medical community completed the largest, longest study regarding alcohol consumption in the world and came to determine, uh, and they even published that regardless of what the medical community has told you in the past, no consumption of alcohol at all is beneficial to the human body in any way. It is only destructive and only dangerous to the human body to consume any amount of alcohol at any time. If you choose to, right, that's your business. But the medical community as a whole was correcting the errors of the medical community in the past and saying, make no mistake, and they particularly addressed the issue of red wine and cardiac patients because that's for a long time been the thing like like one glass of red wine a day uh for your heart is good false okay 
the decomposition of uh, whether you're talking about grains or fruit that produces the alcohol. The alcohol is a poison to your body. Uh, the intoxication that you experience is actually the dramatic process your body is going through to try and get it out of your body because it is so lethal to the human frame. Uh, damages the human mind every single time it is consumed. Permanently damages the human mind every single time it is consumed. John the Baptist needs to have laser-sharp clarity, right? Uh, let's face the music, right? Uh, many of us in this room already have muddled minds. We don't need to muddle them anymore than they are. Whatever we've got left, hang on to it. You know, stop fiddling around with that. So, you know, you know, do what you want. Obviously, God's given you free will. I'm not trying to create a new law, but understand that that whole fallacy of oh it'll you know a little bit does you some good no a little bit never does you any good so um, you can look the study up on your own National Institute of Health not that we trust them much anymore but um, here John is told no strong drink no wine he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb uh, seemingly the way the scripture describes it here certainly is even in his mother's womb is the idea. So the old English wording uh, differs a little bit there. In verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, notice the capital H on the hymn, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the people a people prepared for the Lord. Now, <clears throat> revival. Um, we we all we've talked about it in a lot of different ways, even recently. But true revival, especially the church being brought back to life or awakened, you know that which previously was awake, fell asleep, needs to be revived. That which was previously alive, the church having died, needs to be revived. Revival happens to the church. Okay, uh, Revival, according to Malachi, here turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. Uh, this is one of the first things that happens every time historically we've seen revival, is that fathers start paying attention to their children. Malachi coupled that together by saying that God would then also turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. Okay, When fathers pay attention to their children, children will then listen to and heed their fathers. The greatest plague we have in our world, but particularly in America, is broken homes. Broken homes, broken marriages, and that is because I, I, I recommended before. It's a tough movie. It has to do with drug use. Uh, there, Netflix documentary years ago now called um, Silver or Lead, and it actually has, if you can speak Spanish, the Spanish word for silver and the Spanish word for lead. 
And it's actually uh, the Mexican drug cartel's uh, motto. Um, they come to people in the United States who are in key positions to move their drugs into the U.S. and their money back to Mexico. And they literally put a pile of money in front of them and a bullet. And they tell them, you can have the silver or you can have the lead. You can have the money or the bullet. We're going, we're going to come through your position at the border or wherever their area of influence is. And you can take the money or we'll, or we'll kill you. It doesn't matter which one. So in that documentary, I know this seems way off base, but in that documentary, they have a DEA agent who started in the late 70s working uh, combating the cocaine that was coming into Miami. And he went through all of the cartels. So he was in Colombia and then hunted down, helped hunt down Manuel Noriega. And now he's was, at the time was presently working in Mexico and amongst the cartels. And he said at the end of the documentary that the problem is not the drugs. The problem is America's appetite for the drugs. And if you could cure the desire for the drugs, then the cartels could produce all the drugs they wanted to. There would be no buyer for the drugs. So they ask him later, how would you cure the, uh, the desire? And he said, I would put the fathers of America back at their kitchen table every day for dinner with their families, and I would put the fathers of America back in the pews of America's churches. Okay. Um, revival. When the Holy Spirit comes upon a man like John, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, and the Holy Spirit comes upon a community to change their hearts, one of the first things you're going to see is the hearts of the fathers returning to their families and the hearts of the families responding and returning to their fathers. It's a necessity within this. So look for that in your own life. Okay? Don't think, well, my kids are grown. Go after the kids that are grown. Be there with them. Connect with them. Call them. You know, it's so many resources and capabilities, to, especially today. So, uh, John is going to bring revival of the people and uh, the Holy Spirit working through him. Um, there is a tradition that was taught, and we have no way of confirming this, that the mantle of Elijah that passed to Elisha was kept and preserved and put inside the base of the altar of the incense. From there, there is a New Testament church tradition that Zacharias took that mantle, be it at this time or at another time, to his son, John. And the mantle that was upon Elijah, which came to Elisha, was upon John. Jesus said, if you can accept it, John is Elijah. Uh, and that may be all speculation, okay? But, uh, you know, certainly the spiritual mantle 
that was upon Elijah and Elisha was upon John, that same Holy Spirit. Zacharias, verse 18, said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Now, um, that is not just Zacharias asking a question. There is a full dose of doubt in that statement. This man basically, I don't mean to obviously rewrite the scripture, but he basically says something to the nature of that's impossible. Now, how in the world could that be is the idea. There's no belief in this. Contrast this with Mary and what she's going to say. She says, how in the world could I get pregnant since I have never been intimate with a man? Her question is simply explain to me how that's possible. Okay? And she gets the explanation that the Holy Spirit is going to cause her to be pregnant. And she says, let it be so unto me. Right? Zacharias is completely opposite. He's, he is literally saying, I think you've got the wrong address. <clears throat> Maybe you thought somebody else chose the lot to be in here at the hour of prayer. Maybe you were looking to go literally to another place. You don't know who you're talking to. My wife and I are both completely incapable. Think about this, right? A man who's serving as a priest, maybe his mind should have automatically leaped to Abraham and Sarah, right? I say that as someone who probably would have said something as stupid as what Zacharias just said. I probably would have opened my mouth and inserted my foot and chewed vigorously, just like this man is. But 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 understand that what he's saying is a complete doubt of, of what's being told to him. So how is that going to happen? We're both very old. The angel, verse 19, answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring these glad tidings. That probably is a shock to hear that this is Gabriel. Okay, there are no drawings from the book of Daniel, right? He didn't get to search the internet and discover what Gabriel looked like. Yes, an angel speaking to me, but the man, you know, doesn't have a name badge on, right? Gabriel, messenger, first class, you know what I'm saying? So he just, he shows up, starts talking. Okay, you're an angel. I get that. Oh, you're Gabriel. You know, the historic being who has been the messenger of God throughout time, apparently. Remarkable moment. He His stomach sinks probably even more at this point. You know, I brought these glad tidings to you. Behold, you will be a mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. So it's not just speculation to say Zacharias didn't believe. His expression was full doubt that this was possible. And the angel says, well, since we're on that page, then you don't get to talk. You, you were supposed to walk out of this room and have a great message 
to share with your wife and your community. But uh, you're going to have to do that with pencil and paper from now until nine months is what we're looking at. Once, once the boy is born and once you've named him John, then that will be when you will be able to speak again. And these things will be fulfilled. These things are going to take place, regardless of what you think, regardless of how much you doubt. Think about that, right? We so often hear the false teachers talking about all it takes is that you believe. They place all of the burden upon you. If you just only believed, if you just had enough faith, well, guess what? Zacharias has been praying in faith, right? But the passage of time has brought him to a place of unadulterated doubt. <laughs> he has no expression of faith. He's talking to an angel presently. But that isn't even enough to move his calloused heart into believing what he's hearing in the moment. Take it as an encouragement, right? Because you heard God long ago and you marched off into battle and got soundly defeated for two, three, four, eight decades. And now you're staring down both barrels of, you know, the end of your life. And God says, I'm here to fulfill your promise. And you go, I don't believe it. And God's going to say, I'm going to do it anyway. Because it's not contingent upon you. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness it's not hanging on my shoulders or your shoulders. You know, we can get around certain people inside Christianity who are very victorious, Right? They're, they're very self-motivated. They're very strong in everything they do. And you can just be left feeling like a creep. Well, look. God is the one who gives them victory. And he's also going to give us victory. And you victory. And Zacharias victory in these moments. Because it's going to be his strength. I'm relying upon a strength. Even Zacharias is relying upon God's strength here. As much as his weakness is right on the surface here in the moment, it's God's strength that's going to accomplish these things. It's not like Gabriel shows up and says, Hey, we're ready to fulfill your promises. You with me? And Zach goes, Not so much. And he says, Okay, never mind. I'll find somebody else and leaves. Right? God actually prefers these moments, doesn't he? Think about this, you guys. Go back through the annals of history and look at Gideon. Look at the people God takes. Who am I going to use? Dave. Nobody else. You got any other sons? Nope. Well, there's the one, you know. <laughs> I mean, how meaningless do you have to be that your father forgot who you were? Right? I have no other sons. I wish I did. Oh, wait. No, I do have one. I do have one. He's out in the field. That's right. Go get him. Right? That That's, I mean, you've got to have been brushed aside pretty hard for your dad. to. I want you to gather all your sons, Samuel said. Bring them in, and we're going to look at them, and we're going to see who God chooses. And what's he do? He goes to all the other boys and says, now, all you guys, now, Dave, look, this is an important thing, and you're meaningless. So do us a favor and go tend the sheep. We'll, we'll take care of the grown-up business. 
Remarkable. Remarkable who God chooses and how he uses them. Here, he takes the ones that have been cast off. Zacharias, he, he is not there. Even, even in the moment, right? He's, he's in the act of ministry. This is his ministry. And he's doing it in the most lame way. He's, he's, just, he's not even pulling off the moment correctly. You know, it just, you, you got to imagine that, you know, through this process, you know, as, as, how do you tell people, God gave me a tremendous promise that he's going to fulfill in nine months when you can't speak? You're writing it down and you're making sure they read it. And then when they ask you, why, why didn't, why can't you just tell me about it? Why are you writing? Well, because I didn't believe it. I didn't believe him. That's, that's got to be on your business card. You know, your ministry logo has to be, God did it because I didn't believe him. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. But I find it really encouraging. Because you can look at what you're, the muck you're trudging through and see, oh, well, the, the Lord is, it doesn't give us the opportunity, right? Because, uh, look, the next time Zacharias is asked, do you believe God? You better, you better believe this guy jumps right up and says, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, yes. I don't care how foolish it sounds. Why? Because I don't want to be mute for nine months. I, don't wanna, I, I, don't wanna, I do not want to be that guy ever again. That's a beautiful thing, that the grace of God shines through in such a way. You're going to be unable to speak, but uh, you know we're going to fulfill this. The people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. And it is that marveling I spoke of. Are they worried? Poor old guy. I mean, you don't want to go in and embarrass him and like shout in, Zach, you okay? <laughs> you just, you mean, did you catch yourself on fire? Did you, you know, why, why are you not coming out? We saw the smoke, but just, I don't know, just smoke inhalation? Did you pass out? And, and uh, you know, he's got to come out here in a moment. So they, they linger they marvel, and he comes out after a long time. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. That has to have been like charades, right? I mean, it isn't just a supernatural thing. Zacharias comes out, and there's still a glow about him from the presence of the angel, and everybody assumes amongst one another, he must have had a vision. No, you've got to believe this guy's coming out and trying to like flap his wings and indicate angel somehow, and I don't know what he's doing, but but he's relaying to the crowd that when he was in the temple, he saw something that, you know, they're all getting the idea that he had a vision, he had an encounter, and he's trying to communicate it to them. They perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless, using all the hand signals. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Um she must have been a spectacle. Remember the last time you saw an 80-year-old pregnant woman? 
Okay? She must have been a spectacle. It may have been like Sarah, because the Scripture tells us that the Lord restored Sarah's youth. And we even have confirming factors that men were extremely attracted to her. Okay? It's a rare thing to see an extraordinarily attractive 80-plus-year-old woman. This, this woman is 80 years old, bent over with age, and now she's five months pregnant. It's a remarkable thing that the Lord is doing. Uh, you know, the reproach that was upon her, she's bent over, but I think she's carrying her head a little higher. Uh, there's got to be whispers, and yet people's mouths are being shut at the same time. Because news is getting around that the angel made the visitation, and John is going to be something significant. So this is a remarkable thing. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, a virgin. And that means virgin, just as Isaiah said. Even in the footnote of this Bible, it has been so corrupted that in the footnote of this Bible, it says a young woman. That is completely wrong. It's a wrong translation. Okay, I, I mentioned this Sunday when we were together. At no time in history... Prior to the coming of Christianity, did the Jews or their teachers or their scholars look at Isaiah and say that that meant a young woman or a maiden? They always said that it meant a woman of sexual purity, a virgin in the sense that we think of a virgin would conceive a child. It was not until Christianity and its formulation that the Jewish scholars wanting to oppose Christianity and Mary as the mother of Jesus began to then change the translations and say that it meant something other than a sexually pure woman. They changed that later because they didn't want Jesus to be the Messiah. From there, unbelieving scholars, Westcott and Hort working together were probably the greatest scholars to work on our translation of the Bible as far as its accuracy and its rendering. What's very problematic is neither one of them even believed in miracles. How do you translate the Bible and not believe in miracles? Okay. In the process, they, 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 all of the modern translations, all of them, including the New King James that I'm reading from right here, all of them find roots with Westcott and Hort's work. Look, if you don't believe the scriptures, stop trying to even be involved in translating it. You know, we don't need professionals. What we need are godly people to work on the scripture. What a shame that we have, you know, Rupert Murdoch, who, you know, owns some of the most corrupt things in the world. 
He he owns entire pornographic magazines, their their development and distribution, and he also owns the NIV. Right? You know what I'm saying? Why? Because if if you and I sit down right now and we render a new translation of the Bible, just a paraphrase, right? We go through and we think, oh, we think it says this. And we rewrite the Bible and we put it to a printing press. We get all the money. That's what it's always about. The, the rendering of newer and newer. I, I appreciate the English Standard Version. It's easy to read. It has some really good insights. It also has some really corrupt portions of it, particularly that diminish the deity of Jesus Christ. The virgin birth is mentioned here without question. Verse 27, she is a virgin, and you should never, never allow anyone to even remotely suggest that it means anything other than that. Mary was pure, and the child conceived in her was from God, not from men. Thank goodness, thank God, right? That the child conceived in her was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit, not by any man. Because if it was a man, then the corruption of Adam would have been handed down to that child. This child came directly from God. So, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. The Roman Catholic institution grabs that verse and says, that is why we need to call Mary our spiritual mother. Because the term used right there uh, means that she is elevated above all other women. Highly favored. Well, it's so interesting because the exact same Greek phrase is used by Paul when he references us as the church. We are the highly favored ones. Okay? I agree with the concept that Mary is elevated among other women. There's no question of that. And we are elevated by Christ's love to the same place as Mary, who she makes the confession that the one conceived in her is her Savior. She's in, in, in need of a Savior as much as you are in need of a Savior, as much as every human being is in need of a Savior. The Roman Catholic institution has elevated to her to a place that is false. False. Okay? Uh, they have said that she is the co-mediatrix. She mediates on her behalf as much as Jesus mediates on her behalf. They teach falsely. Okay? She's not a co-mediatrix. Jesus mediates on her behalf. Did. Right? Now she's in the presence of the Lord because she has died. She did not ascend into heaven. I'll point out, you've probably heard the term immaculate conception and perhaps thought that it was referring to this conception right here of Jesus. It is not. The immaculate conception is a false teaching that the Roman Catholic institution has created regarding Mary, saying that her mother was a virgin and God caused her mother to become pregnant and that she was born sinless. Mark chapter 3, the news comes 
to Mary and her sons that Jesus is now claiming to be the Son of God. And Mark tells us that they thought he was insane and went to collect him to take him away to the insane asylum. And that's where they show up when the roof has been pulled apart and the man has been lowered down inside the room and Jesus has forgiven his sins, declaring himself to be God because they say no one could forgive sins except for God. And Jesus said, so that you will know. He, he first says, you have said that rightly. Then he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. You stand up and walk <laughs> and your sins are forgiven. They then say, your mother and brothers are outside. And he says, who are my mother and brothers except for those that are in this room who do the will of my heavenly father? Mary, as beautiful an encounter as this is, as wonderful an encounter as this is, she's as human as you or I. And she's in need as much salvation as you and I experience in the presence of the Lord. So here the angel tells her she's highly favored and that she is blessed amongst all women. Then, verse 29, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, considered what manner of greeting this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And I would say, above all other women, okay, th this woman is remarkable in her faith, in her behavior, in her knowledge of the Scripture. I, I do have to venerate her and elevate her amongst us, not above us, amongst us. She does need to be examined and honored and studied. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and he shall be, and he, excuse me, bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Simple question, no doubting. Just again, explain how that's going to take place. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month of her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And listen, we put that verse on a lot of cards and plaques and locations and I think we really sell it short. You know, we dumb it down to things that really are possible. <laughs> God is saying that the absolute impossible is possible. You need to start applying this to areas of your life that you've relegated to the impossible. You know, people that struggle with habitual sin often turn that thing into an imaginary giant that's inconquerable. And they become convinced, I will never have victory over this. You must hear the promise of the Lord that says, with God, all things are possible. Maybe that's the verse for the t-shirt right there, right? For with God, nothing 
uh, will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maid servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And that's a perfect place to end. When the Lord speaks to us, when the Lord calls us, when the Lord elevates us and says, this is my plan for your life. And we might be right in the middle of freak out, right? And I don't mean because of the message. I mean, we might be like right in the middle, like Zacharias of total doubt and failure. And God says, hey, want to hear my plan for you? <laughs> the, re the best response is, may it be as you have said. L let it be to me as you have said. There's an obedience in that. Even, even if in your heart you're thinking, I don't know how in the world he could possibly pull that off. Right? If you know and trust God, what you're doing is you're saying, let it be according to your capabilities. Not according to mine. Not according to Zacharias's age and his crippling of years. Well, you say that's what you want. Then I'll I'm down with that plan, whatever that plan might be. Let's let's go ahead and do that. I'll just I'll get on that sled and you take it wherever you want. You know that that that's your plan. I'm willing to see those things done in my life. We're all gathered here tonight because that young woman agreed with the Lord's plan for her life. And think about who we might affect with our lives and what the Lord might do with them. Amen? Amen. So that's our second Christmas study. So why don't we stand? We are going to be together on Christmas Eve here, if you've got time. I made the final arrangements for that today. So if you got the time, 6 o'clock, we'll be here Christmas Eve and uh, sing a few songs and uh, read the Christmas story together and uh, examine the scripture a little bit and then fellowship and uh, hang out and probably eat too much food. So if you can make it, if you can be here, please do. Well, let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace in our lives, and we ask that you would continue to accomplish your work in our hearts, in our minds, in our circumstances. We surrender ourselves to you, and especially as we see the world just spun out of control. Help us to be men and women that are surrendered to you, seeing your kingdom come and your will being done in us and through us and by us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Please stay in fellowship as long as you can.